Well, in uh, the weekly email I sent out today, I talked a little bit about daddy-daughter date night. I don't know if you happened to catch my little blurb about the message this week, but uh, I thought this is a great place to start the message. My daughters, my two oldest daughters, Anna and Kaylin, and I occasionally have a daddy-daughter date night. There's some photos from our last one. We were at Hoo Hot there. And, uh, you know, I, I think my, all my, all three of my girls are adorable, and my oldest two here, Anna and Kaylin, I think they are so beautiful. I just look at my girls, and I think, you know, they're all their mother, because none of that could have come from me. And I just think they are so beautiful. But there is something about daddy-daughter date night. There is something about their faces, there is something about this glow and when they have time with their daddy that I think makes them, it just brings out their natural beauty. They just shine with it. There's a silliness, you know, there's a laughter. We have a phenomenal time on daddy-daughter date night. It's a really, I think that time is a special time for us because as a dad, as I pour into my daughters, I have a part in making them beautiful. And, and I love that. I take that role as a dad pretty seriously. It's similar, a similar thing with my wife, you know. Uh, I, I think my wife is drop-dead gorgeous. She's amazing. And uh, there is a time, though, once in a while, that I'll just do something, and I'll make her laugh and smile. And there will be this little sparkle in her eye. I can't even quantify it. I can't even tell you, explain it to you, but you know, I'm always trying to crack jokes with her because I want that sparkle. <laughs> and most of the time it doesn't work because I don't have a good enough sense of humor apparently. But um, you know, there's just those, those moments where I'll say something funny and she'll, she'll twinkle in her eye and it just brings out her natural beauty. And I love it because I had a hand in it. Today is about the beauty of the gospel. And I want you to know that the way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. The way you live, the way I live, the way we live brings out the beauty of the gospel. So we're in this series, In a Godless World, and we're talking about how to live as the church in a godless world. Paul sent one of his right-hand men to Titus. He sent him to the island of Crete where there was a church, and there were churches in the various cities on the island of Crete, and Paul sent Titus there to straighten out a mess. It was a doctrinal, doctrinal practical mess. Now the Cretans, as we looked at last week, were, uh, one of their own prophets said, and we've We've talked about this the last couple of weeks, that the Cretans were vile, immoral people. And the church on Crete was being influenced by these Jewish Christians who were saying, you first must become a Jew and then you can trust Jesus. And last week we talked about the gospel plus and then the importance of staying true to the mission and the focus of the gospel. Let's not add to it. Let's stay on track. Today I want you to know and, and all that came out of because of the sufficiency of Christ. And today I want you to know because Christ is sufficient, the way we live shows the beauty of the gospel to the world. The way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel literally means, and you know this, good news. It's the good news. It's Jesus being God in human form, restoring relationships, reversing death, rewriting our story to glorify God and his story. The gospel is the fact that we are sinners and completely unable 
unable to earn God's favor. In, in, in the Eastern world, where they have a heavy emphasis on shame, we can talk about it in terms of shame. They've brought shame to themselves. And Jesus is about reversing that shame. He's about reversing guilt. He's about reversing sin. We're unable to reconcile ourselves to God. And so he rewrites our story in a way that makes his glory shine. So Jesus died as a substitute in our place. He rose from the dead. And so it's through faith that we can be reconciled to God. And then we are part of his kingdom working here in his kingdom to accomplish his work for his glory. The gospel is really a simple message. We're unable to get ourselves out of the mess. And so God became one of us to do it for us in our place. The gospel is really a simple message. And when we understand the depth of our own helplessness, we begin to grasp our need for the gospel. When we understand the depth of our own helplessness, that's when we grasp our need for the gospel. Because the gospel is the most beautiful message in the history of the world. The gospel is beautiful. The gospel is beautiful. It's more beautiful than a priceless painting. It's more beautiful than a beauty queen in Miss America. It's more picturesque than a sunset across an ocean of water. It's, it's more perfect and beautiful than a splashless dive in the Olympics. I watched that last night. A couple splashless dives. It's more beautiful than a perfectly pitched baseball game. It's more beautiful than a woman's tears when her boyfriend puts a ring on her finger. It's more beautiful than the birth of a child. The gospel is more beautiful than the tears of joy that a parent sheds after being reunited with a lost child. The gospel is beautiful. It's beautiful. And the way we live brings out the beauty of the gospel. Many times the gospel is like a, a, a table, like an old table that has been worn and beat up and crayon drawn all over it. And uh, we have a table like that in our living room. It's got hot glue stuck on it. And, um, but the table is beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of wood. When I, uh, when I was a kid, we used to go to my grandma's house. And uh, a lot of weekends we'd go up there. She lived in a small town in Iowa. And she had this house. I probably sat on two, two acres. And, and it was an old house. And in, her, in the basement was a canning cellar. And so I used to love to go down there because it was the coolest place in the house in the summertime. And, and I'd go down there. And in the basement, my grandma canned. And she had this canning cellar and this, all these cans out there. And there was this one pantry in the canning cellar. It was, uh, she, I mean, it had been around forever. And it, it had like five layers of paint on it, you know. And they're probably lead paint. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, it was old. It was just beat up. And, and uh when we first got married, my mom was kind of going through her mom's stuff and cleaned this out. And she grabbed that pantry cabinet and she had it refinished. And they took it and they put it in this chemical dip and they peeled all the layers of paint and they sanded it and they stained it and they put new glass in the front of this cabinet. And it is beautiful. That brought out the natural beauty in this piece. Today it's sitting in Olivia's room. My mom had it refinished and the natural beauty shined. 
Friends, there have been enough people in this world who have tried to paint the gospel. They've tried to add layers to it. They've added toxic lead. They've made it gospel plus. And this world is sick of gospel plus. The world is sick of hypocrisy. The world is sick of a political gospel. The world is sick of a distorted gospel. The world's sick of the what's in it for me gospel. The world needs to hear and see the beauty, the natural beauty of the gospel. And friends, today you need to know that the way you live brings out the natural beauty of the gospel. So this takes us to the text today. Because up to this point, Paul's directives are focused on false teachers. Now Paul shifts and his focus is now on the church, those who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell them that the way they live brings out the beauty of the gospel to the world around them. So today's outline comes from three, three points in the text. And this is where I need you to follow along with me, okay? There's three little transitional words that highlight the thoughts that Paul has in this passage. The first transitional word is found in verse 5. It says, so that, the last phrase there in the verse, so that no one will malign the word of God. That so that is one word in, in the original language. So that. And then that same little transitional word occurs in verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. And then the last little transitional word that helps us see what, where we're going today is in verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You know, it would be really easy to turn this message today into rules for living in the church. It'd be very easy to do that, you know? And, and Paul kind of set, sets out some of that stuff. And we could make it about rules for living in the church. But we must not forget the spirit of this passage. Paul cares deeply about making the gospel beautiful in the, to the world around us. Because the way we live brings out the beauty of the gospel. You and I are the church. You and I are the ones who represent Christ to the culture around us. It's not the pastors. It's not the elders. It's, it's the way we live together as a body that brings out the beauty of the gospel. And so today I want to take these three things and I want to talk about the three ways that we can live that, about bringing out the beauty of the gospel. And these will form our outline. And the first point I want to share with you today is that the way we live makes the word look beautiful. The way we live makes the world look beautiful. This is centered on verses 1 through 6, wrapping up with that phrase, so that. You see, the way we interact as a church makes the gospel look beautiful. I've got to be honest. I looked at this passage this week and I go, I don't want to preach this one. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to do this one. Let, let's pick a different one. Uh, why did I have an outline for where we're going? And so, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest. I look at this passage and no matter what, someone's going to feel old when you read this passage, right? <laughs> someone's going to, I mean, who are the old men? I don't know. He doesn't give us an age, so I don't know. But apparently it's self-defined. Uh, you know, the first instructions for, and then over, older women, you know, that's even better. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to point out who the older women are here today. I think that's going to get me in trouble. Uh, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Those are the four pieces of instruction that Paul gives in this, in this first section about not maligning the word of God. So rather than make a list of rules or start pointing out who the young people and the old people are, 
Let's look at the results of the godly behavior. Let's look at the results of that. What's the result? So that no one will malign the word of God. The way we interact together as the body of Christ, the way we misinteract, gives people cause to malign the word of God. The, the word malign literally means blasphemy. Personal mockery. That's the word. The word of God is important. This is important to us. The word's important. What kind of behavior would cause people to blaspheme or malign the word of God? Well, the theme throughout all four of those groups of people is self-control. There's a theme in every group. Self-control and reverent behavior. These are the themes here. The older men are told to be self-controlled. The older women are told to live reverently. The younger women are told to be self-controlled. The young men are told to be self-controlled. Why does a lack of self-control cause non-believers to blaspheme the word of God? Because we, if we just live like the world, then this book makes no difference to us in our lives. If we just live like everybody else in the world, people will look at us and go, well, you claim to be a follower of Christ, but what difference does this make? What difference does that word make? It makes no difference. You don't look any different than anybody else. In fact, I think you look worse. And so when we do this, when we just live like the world, when we don't prioritize the word of God, it gives them cause to say, it doesn't make any difference. You see, our world is selling us a message that is counter to the message of self-control. Our world is selling us a message of self-indulgence. Young people, do what makes you happy. You know, here's what a, that's what a credit card is for. Charge it up. Do whatever makes you feel good at the moment. And how about retired people, you know? <laughs> like, Hey, you've earned the right. You've worked for that many years. You've earned the right to do whatever you want now, to answer to nobody, to be happy. You do whatever you want. You deserve it. To some, this is, works itself out in marriage too. And the way we relate as husband and wife, you know, our, our, our culture encourages, <laughs> says, oh yeah, love your spouse, but you know, if your spouse hasn't loved you right, then you deserve better. So run with your feelings. Go with your feelings. Be self-indulgent. And the gospel says, no, be self-controlled. Which, by the way, self-control, remember, is a fruit of the Spirit. How do we develop self-control? Well, it's not by trying harder. It's by yielding to the God's Spirit. It's a gift of the Spirit. We receive self-control. The word of God tells us to live differently. When we live just like the world around us, the word of God can be maligned. This is interesting in how it works itself out in our community of believers. Um, I received a phone call this week from a fellow believer, and he apologized to me for something. You know how beautiful that is? You know how beautiful it is when believers set aside their pride and go, I was wrong. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That is so countercultural. 
an apology in our world says, I was wrong, but I was actually justified in what I did. And that's what an apology from the world says. An apology from a believer says, I humbly confess that I put my own needs above your needs. Please forgive me. It's beautiful. I had to send an apology email to the guys in my life group a couple weeks ago. I said something that I shouldn't have said. It was inappropriate. It was not cool. And I had to send that out. And you know, the cool thing is that, you know, they're just so gracious and loving to me and, and forgiveness was granted. And You know, as a pastor, sometimes I feel like I'm under a microscope. Like whether I'm at church in the world, my behavior has to be like super holy, extra holy behavior. Or I'm a pastor, you know. Guess what? It's not just me that's under a microscope. You are too. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, the world automatically has set the bar higher for you and they're just waiting for you to screw up so they can go, ah, see? So Paul says self-control is so important so that the word of God is not maligned. How you live matters. Don't give people an opportunity to revile the word. The way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. So when we live in community together, we bring out the beauty of the gospel. When we place ourselves in a discipleship relationship with someone else, it's the beauty of the gospel. When we're a mutually submissive, loving relationship within the church to each other, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. When we're honest and we get the crap out on the table, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. When we have real discussions and real friendships and when we love each other sacrificially and when we say, I care about the unity of the body more than I care about myself. When we say these kinds of things with mutual love, unity in mind. When we say these things with a self-sacrifice of putting others' needs before our own, when we live in community together like this, that's the gospel being made beautiful through us. And so we show the world, hey, the word works. This works. This makes a difference to me. The world has no interest in that thing. So the way you live makes the word look beautiful. The way we live does something else too. It makes the truth look beautiful. I'm going to skip over to verse 7 and 8. Not only does the way we live make the word look beautiful, but it just makes the simple truth look beautiful. Paul turns his attention back to Titus now. So he's talked to the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger men. And now he's going to turn his attention back to Titus, who he sent to Crete to straighten out the mess on the island. And he turns and he says... In verse 7 to 8, look what he says to Titus. He says, In everything, Titus, set them an example by doing what is good. And your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. As Paul's representative of the church on Crete, Titus' behavior is important. Do what is good. Don't be a hypocrite. Know the truth. I mean, he says, in your teaching, show seriousness. So first thing he says is, do what's good, right? He says, do what's good. Doing what is good in your teaching, show seriousness. Right teaching results in right behavior. 
Too many Christians don't even know the truth enough to live the truth. We're settled, you know, with I'm just content going and letting Pastor Dave tell me or, you know, we're content with the gospel of me. This, this is about me. But the gospel is about God. I am the object of his affection by no reason of my own. That makes sense. It's beautiful. That's the truth. I didn't do anything to earn God's affection for me. It's because of who he is. And so we're part of his kingdom. So we should know what's true. And then we should act on it by doing what's good. You know, you don't have to live a perfect life. That's not, this is not about like, hey, we're going to put everyone under a microscope now and we're going to point out any behavior that we don't like. That, that's, that's legalism. That, that's not what this is about. I'm just saying don't make yourself an easy target. You know? uh, don't make yourself, big talk and no action makes you an easy target. Know the truth and live it. The world loves to find fault in believers because we have to have a high code of ethics. They love to see this when we screw up. So, you know, um, as an example, I was thinking about the Chick-fil-A mess this week, and uh, I have no idea whether this, this uh, girl was a believer or not. I don't know. But the guy came up with the drive-thru, and he was recording this. I don't know if you saw this video, and his point was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a cup of water from Chick-fil-A because they're all haters, and I'm going to steal a cup of water from them. And so he went up to the drive-thru, and he just started pestering this young lady who's she's probably making seven bucks an hour doing drive-thrus thing. And, and you know what I loved? She didn't argue with the guy. She just said, this is my position. There you go. Now, I have no idea if she's a believer, and that didn't really have anything. That wasn't about the gospel, but I just liked her response. It was just quiet. I think sometimes as people who live out the gospel, we need to live in a way where we know the truth and our behavior speaks for us. We're not afraid to speak the truth, and we know that there's a time for that, but our behavior what is good validates the truth. We speak. We make the truth of Jesus look good. Faith in Action Sunday, that's coming up. You know, as a church, we made the truth look beautiful. I mean, it's just fun. It's just fun to see you all out, us all together in this thing, knowing the truth and living it out. You know, uh, I, I always said, talking to Dom recently, and he was just talking about some of the cool things happening at Sugar Creek uh, because, you know, this community that wasn't there has is, is kind of started to grow now, and they're, they're starting to develop a little bit of a community because of this, just us simply beginning a relationship there. I mean, you understand that that makes the gospel look beautiful? Uh, I was talking to another individual who had said, I was done with church. I was tired of those Christians and I hadn't been to church for a while and, and you're making me rethink my involvement in a church. Do you know that's beautiful? Like that's making the gospel, the truth look beautiful. Doing what is good is the way we validate the teaching of the gospel. When people oppose us, our lives give them nothing bad to say about the gospel. It's easy to pick on the Ted Haggards of the world and those people who, you know, are in high profile pastorates and they screw up. And it's easy to sort of pick on them because their teaching and their action don't match. It's clear. What's tougher is to look into our own lives. Do what I, what I say I believe, does it match my actions? If we don't take Jesus seriously, it shows the gospel is joyous and celebratory. 
I like that he says in your teaching, show seriousness. The gospel, I mean, I, I like to joke and I like to have fun and I enjoy it when people laugh. Even if it's at me, I still kind of like it. And uh, so you're free to laugh at me. And but, you know, what Paul is saying is that the gospel isn't flippant. It's not a, it's not a downer, but it's not just flippant. It's joyous and serious. The way we live brings out the beauty of the truth. You make the word look beautiful. You and I make the truth look beautiful. And then our last, so that. Our last, so that is found in verse 10. So that in every way, they'll make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. And that brings us to the third thing. The way we live makes freedom look beautiful. The way we live makes the word look beautiful. It makes the truth look beautiful. And it makes freedom look beautiful. Look at verse 9 and 10. Here we go. 9 and 10. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them. Not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that... Why should they live like that? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. When you first look at that, that might rub you the wrong way a little bit. Wait a minute. Why does Paul not call out slavery as something evil? I mean, why doesn't he call slavery for what it is? You know, something terrible. Why, why does he not do that? Why isn't he concerned about a slave's rights? Why doesn't he say to the slaves, hey, it's good the gospel teaches you that you're free, so rise up. Get your freedom. Let's start a revolution and change this great atrocity across the world. Why doesn't he tell slaves to do that? That might be troubling, but you have to understand that Paul has something bigger in mind here. There is something more than even slaves' rights. There's something more important than even something good as that. It's the gospel. We live in a world where freedom is one of the most significant values that Americans have. I have the freedom to do this. I have the freedom to do that. It might be the most important value in our culture. In Paul's days, he asked slaves to set aside their right to pursue their own freedom and justice in the face of this terrible justice. He says, there's something more important here than your freedom. And this to us is such a foreign concept because most of us have spent our lives trying to pursue independence and freedom. But again, Paul has in mind a setting aside of his own freedoms for the cause of Christ. He says to slaves, try to please them. Don't talk back to them. Setting aside our own freedoms for the cause of Christ. Denny reminded me of Gail Sayers' book he wrote years ago. Uh, Gail Sayers was a great Bears running back. That's why I care. And, uh, and Gail Sayers wrote a book, I Am Third. And it's just a simple concept. I put God first, I put others second, and I put me third, and that's the way I live my life. Most people don't think of freedom in these terms. They think of freedom not as, it's not freedom to subject myself to another, to put myself, it's not freedom. Freedom is the absence of restraint in our culture. Freedom seems in our culture like that's the American dream. Think about it. I mean, how, how many people have met with you, a financial planner, and talked to you about financial independence? 
And again, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. We got, probably got financial planners here today. But what's our culture telling us? The message is the most important thing you can do is not be dependent upon anybody. That's, I mean, that's the promise of the lottery, isn't it? That's why we buy, people buy lottery tickets because I can get this money and then I'm free from worry and I'm free from concern and I'm free from a boss and I'm free from trouble and I'm free. Financial independence is the allure of money. Answer to no one. Be dependent to no one. You know, I've talked with some people who I know who handle the money of some of the wealthiest individuals in central Iowa and across the country. And you know what the theme is? The theme is that those individuals, the wealthiest of the wealthy, are not free. They live in fear that they'll lose everything they've amassed. Not that I would live my life by Henry David Thoreau, <laughs> but what he said seemed apt. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with that song still in them. Real freedom is not absence of restraint or accountability. Or Real freedom is actually someone telling me what to do. And that person is Christ. Real freedom is submission to Christ. It's the value of the gospel above my own rights. Christ has set us free. Submit to him. And of this, when we live this out in the church, when we live this out in the church, we make the gospel look beautiful. We make look freedom look beautiful because we show them what free, the world what freedom really is. When we live this out in a way we relate to one another, Philippians 2 comes to mind. What does it say? Consider others more important than yourself. The gospel is embodied in the church. When we love each other, we sacrifice our freedoms for the benefit of others. When we live the gospel at work in others, we care about them more than ourselves. When we live this out in the church, we consider others more important than ourselves. Freedom is when we set aside our desires and bring out the beauty of the gospel. Think about this in Crete. As evil as their culture was, if they lived out this kind of life in Crete, they would stand out like a light on a hill. Self-control and mutual submission would keep the gospel from being maligned, but it would also make the church stand out. In a culture where the church is a supplement to life, the way we live and respond to each other says something different. The way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. In a culture where self-indulgence rules the day, the way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. In a culture where truth is relative and we have a chance to live out through our good works, the way you live brings out the beauty of the gospel. In a culture where everyone is consumed with rights, we have the opportunity to give up our rights. The way we live brings out the beauty of the gospel. I talked about my wife earlier. Oh, I remember when I first met her on the campus of the Moody Bible Institute on the plaza. I looked across that grassy plaza, as it were, and, and saw this gorgeous blonde. And I could not get her out of my mind. I have to know that girl. And so I, I imagine I pursued her and I formed this relationship with her completely 
completely with ulterior motives. And, uh, you know, I, and, and, she, and I just couldn't get her out of my head. And we started dating and her beauty just was stuck in my head. But, you know, eventually over time, you get married and life gets busy. And, you know, sometimes you just get used to each other. And I've always think she's beautiful. But from time to time, that little sparkle in her eye, from time to time I still look at her and I go, my wife is gorgeous. I'm, man, she's gorgeous. Friends, today, that's the gospel sometimes. In our lives, those of us who believe in Jesus, sometimes we kind of lose track. We forget how beautiful the gospel is. The gospel is beautiful. The message of what Christ has done for us. And so I have two challenges for you today as we close. Two challenges. First, dwell in the beauty of the gospel. Just sit and think about what Christ has done for you when you didn't deserve it and dwell on the beauty of the gospel. Then my second challenge to you is how can you live out the beauty of the gospel in the way we relate in the church specifically? Because that's what Paul has in mind in Titus 2. Next week is how we live out the beauty of gospel specifically outside the church. But this week, in the church, how do you live out the beauty of the gospel? Let's pray as we close. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in your almighty sovereignty that you would look down and see in us something worth dying for. And we know we didn't deserve that and we're grateful. It is beautiful. Jesus, if nothing else today, we walk away from here lifting your name and reflecting on the beauty of this message but I ask for something more. I pray that you would help us in this church to live out the beauty of the gospel as we relate to each other. Help us to live out the beauty of the gospel as we interact throughout the week in our life groups. Help us then to live out the beauty of the gospel as we interact with people who don't know you. Let us live this out. In Jesus' name. Amen.